Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It could be extinct in your lifetime, has a very interesting love life, and has farmers putting conservation before profit and loving it. What is it? We're about to find out. It's not only the bird that's benefiting here, it's us as well. I think that both Andrew and I have grown as people because of our association with the bird. Hey folks, I'm Benjamin Law. Welcome to Look At Me. Now, everyone's distracted by well-known Australian animals like kookaburra, kangaroo, echidna, much beloved, maybe overrated. But what about the ones we don't even know about? Why should something like the koala, which is frankly chlamydia-infested, hog all the limelight? Yeah, you know, Ben, sometimes we don't like things that remind us of ourselves. Fair enough. That's Chris McCormack from Remember the Wild. He's here to explain Australia's lesser-known animals to me because I really know next to nothing about them. You know absolutely nothing. That's very true, actually. I am almost too scared to ask, but what is the animal we're looking at now? Well, Ben, it's, uh, it's about this big. Okay, you've just handed me, like, one of those wet one dispensers, so I can hold it in the palm of my hand. It's about, what is it, six inches high... Um, cylindrical in nature. Are we looking at a very stumpy, stout animal? No, not particularly. But look, it's not its not particularly tall. So, you know, standing on tippy toes, it's probably about the size of an average person's hand, you know, from the, the base of their hand to the tips of their fingers. So it has toes. You've given me one clue. <laughs> it does have toes, unlike some of the other species we've talked about. I'm going to show you a photo. It's like a police lineup. This is what we're looking at today. I recognise her. She stole my handbag. That's a beautiful bird. It's like got a bit of like a red breast. It's got yellow feet. It's quite a handsome looking animal, actually. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Now, I really like birds generally. This one's colouring is really, really beautiful. Is it a favourite with bird watchers? Why are we looking at this one today? Favourite with bird watchers? Well, interesting because... Most people probably haven't seen this bird. Oh. It is a bit of a phantom. Its name is the Plains Wanderer. The Plains Wanderer. That's very evocative and poetic. So why is this particular bird so special, so unique? Well, first of all, it is very unique, all right? It's, it's, it's very distinct and it's very endangered. The Plains Wanderer is in a family all of its own. What that means is that you and I are much more closely related to gorillas and chimpanzees than the plains wanderer is to any other bird in the world. 
its ancestors, its fossilised ancestors, were in Australia 60 million years ago. So it's been here for a very, very long time before marsupials. This is Dr David Baker-Gab, one of the most knowledgeable people going round when it comes to the plains wanderer. Now there's about 10,000 species of bird in the world. And in terms of evolutionary distinctiveness and global endangerment, the plains wanderer is number one out of those 10,000 species. Now this isn't a list that you really want to be on. It's like being number one on the line on death row in Texas. It's a list you want to get off. Wow, so when we hear about how endangered that is, can we even break it down into any metrics? Do we know how many of those birds are out there in the wild? I don't think so. I don't think we have much of an idea, but not many. We heard that we probably have more in common with chimpanzees and gorillas than this bird has with any other bird. How did it become so isolated on its family tree? That's an amazing question. Incredibly insightful, Ben. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> I'm just asking the question. I'm just asking riddles, really. <laughs> I'm a sphinx. <laughs> so, look, I mean, it's it's been in Australia for a really, really long time. Predates marsupials, all right, before kangaroos wow. and possums were, were getting about. Um, and it's a shorebird. Do you know what a shorebird is? I have no idea. Okay. I, when, when you say that, I was nodding my head thinking, oh, it lives on the shore. Is that what a shorebird is? That's right. Is? Yeah, it's not a bird that's cert- really certain about itself. It's, it's a shorebird. It lives- <laughs> that's a terrible joke. <laughs> it, uh, so shorebirds live on the beach, typically. That's why we call them shorebirds or wading birds. This is a shorebird that said, a eh, bit over the sea change. I'm going to have a plains change. And it's evolved to occupy inland Australia. Oh. The closest living relative to it is something called a seed snipe in South America. So Gondwana, you know, the supercontinent when South America, Africa, New Zealand, Antarctica and Australia were all connected. This bird, its lineage is so old that its closest relatives are now on another continent. Wow. Now, it's got a really interesting family life and uh, I think you're gonna I think you're gonna like this. They have an unusual mating system for any species in that the female lays her eggs and then the male sits on them and that male incubates the eggs and as soon as the chicks start to hatch, that female is likely to be mating with a second male and he then rears the second clutch. Wow, so the female basically lays the egg, the male then takes over runs that household while the female has gone on. She has, she is not looking back. How common is that? It's not very common. Uh, yeah, she's kind of like, all right, mate, that's your problem now and, you know, all power to her. Look, there are other species that do this. I mean, think about your your ratites like your emus uh, and your cassowary here in Australia. Dad looks after the chicks. Yeah. Um, there are other grassland birds, certain species of quail that do this, but it's, It's not common across the board. Wow, what a savage matriarchy. I'm behind it. (laughs) It, It's a matriarchy of sorts. And I showed you that photo, the pretty red sort of rufous breast Mm. and the the black and white collar. Now, that's the female. In this species, she's bigger and she's the good-looking bird. And the male is this sort of tawny small thing that just hides in the grass. Wow, they're the shaky, awkward nerds drawn to this incredible woman 
who is basically like, if you want me, come get me, because otherwise I'll be at this other bird's house next week. Pretty much. <laughs> and uh, in fact, she may even have more than two male partners during the breeding season. We're not sure, but we know that she has at least two. So after the chicks are hatched and raised by their dad, what happens next? Let's start in the egg, okay, and have a look at life as a plains wanderer. So the egg that you were in um, was quite a pointy egg, has one round end and one pointy end. So the pointy ends all face into the middle and they don't roll away very easily across the, on the ground. So you're in a grass tuft. The entrance to that tuft always faces east, so it gets the morning sun and doesn't get baked in the hot afternoon sun, so it's got the shade from the rest of the grass tuft to the west. All birds are kind of architects in their own way, but these birds seem incredibly well attuned to their natural environment. All of their homes point east for sun reasons. Like that is, It feels like we're talking about grand designs, birds version right here. Like that is, that is pretty cool. Yeah, that's right. So this is an adaptation to deal with the fact that they're in a very hot country with the sun that could be baking their eggs, baking their chicks. It's a bit kind of stonehenge It's this ritualistic, mm. like the sun will rise in the east and the sun will come down this line and it will not touch my eggs. <laughs> anyway, when you hatch, the male picks up the shells and runs away with them and dumps them some distance from the nest so as not to alert ravens and other sharp-eyed birds that might happily munch a, um, a little fluffy fluffball plains wanderer chick for lunch. And very quickly, you're on your feet and moving around, a bit like young chickens do, and you start finding your own food. So it'll be seeds and tiny insects. That's what plains wanderers eat. When dad calls you with a call, all you and your siblings will race underneath dad and hide underneath him. And then he'll step off you when he decides the coast is clear. And at night, you will be sleeping underneath dad's wings and under under his fluffy underbelly. So you'll stay nice and warm on a cold night. You'll be with dad for probably about two months. And then he'll perhaps move off, but you'll stay within 10 metres or so of your siblings for maybe another two or three months. And then pretty much you're on your own. And you could become a breeding bird by about six months of age. So they are quite capable of breeding very early. So this is a sort of arid boom-bust species. You're out, and while conditions are good, then you're capable of breeding at a very early age and you go for it. And then when conditions turn hard, droughts or whatever, you mightn't breed for two or three years. So they start young in terms of their breeding cycle. And also it sounds like the women really rule the roost. Like if anything, they kind of have like male concubines. So the sexual politics of this bird are really interesting. Yeah, that's right, and it works for them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look, they can start breeding at a really young age, as, as David said, um, and that's because they live in an environment where if conditions are great, okay, get on with it, because conditions in arid Australia aren't, aren't stable. They're not always mm. going to be great. Droughts come, the environment changes, and it might be that you won't have good breeding conditions soon enough. So 
let's uh, let's get on with the job. Also a very good model of fatherhood. It sounds like these male dad birds are very, very protective of the young for a decent amount of time. Absolutely. So they're looking after them. They're putting their body on the line to help these little chicks. And and keep in mind that these these chicks, you know, are up and going pretty much from from day one. So they're finding their own food, and Dad's got to keep an eye out on all these like rambunctious little little uh, boys and girls running around. And yeah, he's a pretty good father. So everything I hear about this bird makes it sound like to me. Like this bird has its shit together. It knows how to build a house. It knows how to take care of its young. It even knows how to tidy up after itself, like putting the eggshells away somewhere else, and they can start breeding young. So why would this bird, of all birds, be endangered? Great question. The primary reason for its decline is habitat loss. Basically, its preferred habitat is native grasslands. Native grasslands make very good sites for croplands. So the grasslands of the Victorian volcanic plain where plains wanderers were really abundant, um, even as sh- short a time ago as 150 years ago, um, 99% of them are gone. They've either been turned into crops routinely or into dense introduced fertilised pastures, which they can't occupy. And if you go north of the divide in Victoria, then 95% of them are gone. And the other remaining 5% are somewhat degraded. New South Wales, the eastern part of their range in the Riverina has been cultivated. The western part of their range is periodically severely overgrazed during drought times, and so they are moved out. So those sorts of changes have taken place. So it's habitat loss and habitat change, which would be the main drivers of their decline. Okay, so so much of our native grasslands are basically now agricultural land for for sheep and for cattle. How does that square with trying to save this incredibly endangered rare species? Well, the only reason that we still have plains wanderers is that some farmers have enabled them to survive. Now, on the northern plains in Victoria, for example, most of the grasslands have been cropped. But there are a few farmers up there who are really keen on their plains wanderers. They're their birds. Plot twist. So as we talk about why species are endangered, usually the answer comes back to, well, it's us and things that we've done. So habitation loss in this particular case But the twist here is that farmers are also finding that they have a role in actually making sure that these birds are safe. That's right, yeah. And look, it is us. We are the reason that the Plains Wanderer is um, in such dire straits. But as you say, there are some farmers out there that have adopted the stewardship of this species and they're doing some really great things for it. Oh, hi, we're Andrew and Faye Bale, and we're sheep farmers from the um, plains um, in northern Victoria. We both grew up on farms. Um, Faye grew up on a, a dairy farm. Um, I grew up on a sheep farm, you know, a dry land sheep farm. I've done nothing but um, farming in my whole life. Uh, never left, never left home. Andy and Faye love their plains wanderers. 
and they're actually changing the way they farm, costing themselves money, putting a lot of effort to ensure this bird's habitat is preserved on their land. Um, Faye probably loves the Plains Wanderer because he's like an emu. The, the father looks out, he sits on the eggs and rears the young ones and does all the work and the Plains Wanderer female's a real dressy bird. The male's as plain as anything and she's got all the makeup on and, and the colour and she's out partying while he's looking after the kids. That suits you, Faye. That suits you well, does it? Well, I'm not sure that that's me, but... Um, but, but you like, you're like happy about idea, it. I like the idea that the, the um, female bird's the pretty one. Usually it's it's the, the male birds um, are always the pretty one, so it's nice to have that uh, for the plains wanderer. He's a hard worker by the sound of it. You know, he, he um, fronts up and does all the dad things. And I, I will be honest, I probably didn't do that as well as I could have years ago with my kids. So you're out here, you've got these vast plains around you, only the occasional tree, it's a beautiful landscape. When did you first find out that you had plains wanderers on your farm? One night when we were out checking ewes that were lambing and uh, we, we noticed it jump up and land a little in front of us and we got our, our spotlight out and, um, and got right down and studied this um, bird thinking, right, we're going to take all the details and go home and look in our bird book. So we did that and we realised it was a plains wanderer. So that was um, the start of the excitement. It was really, for, for an old guy, it was really exciting. Yeah, it, because it's so unique and they're not found in many places, you really have a sense that what you're seeing is, is so special. We're just so thrilled to have it on our property. Most of them didn't know what a plains wanderer was 30 years ago, but now most of the farmers up there with grasslands do know what a plains wanderer is, and they're their birds, and they have quite a pride, you know, in looking after the number one uh, most endangered, most distinct bird in the world, and many of them go out of their way and at some, you know, cost to their bottom line, to do the right thing. Chris, we heard that Faye and Andy are willing to spend time and money to make sure that the Plains Wanderer is protected, but how does that actually manifest? What do they need to do? They change their grazing habits. If we graze for the Plains Wanderer, the Plains Wanderer doesn't like the grass too tall. It likes a bit of tussocky but bare dirt, a bare ground between. So it means that sometimes if the, you know, if the summer rain, you just have to take something back to um, get the grass level back down to its, that suits it. So if, it, if you get a lot of rain and the grass shoots up, you will go out of your way to bring your sheep back to make that habitat more appropriate for this bird. Yeah, if it, if it rains and um, in, if we get a lot of summer rain, which is like we did in 2010 and 11, um, and that was a disaster year, for, you know, for the Plains Wanderers out there. Years ago, we never worried, you know, when we didn't know we had, you know, 
weren't doing anything for Plains Wanderers, you'd just look at it and think, oh, I've got plenty of feed ahead of me. But now we would make sure that we went back and grazed our best paddocks that, that the Plains Wanderers like to try and keep them to a level that suits them. Because mm. um, we know if we don't, they won't be there. Chris, when you read about the natural history of Australia, you read a lot about the devastation that introduced species have done to the land, but this is like a very rare situation where an introduced species can actually help maintain the natural environment for a native species? Yeah, so I guess this is a situation where we've lost so much of our grassland habitat and we've lost a lot of the natural processes that provided the kind of habitat structure the plains wanderer required. So now we're having to use sheep and cattle to fulfil those processes. The Plains Wanderer needs grasslands and grass to be at a very certain height, a very certain level. Sounds like a pretty fussy bird. Yeah, look, it does tolerate a broad range of of grassland structures, but maybe it has a right to be fussy because it used to have a hell of a lot of grassland to choose from. So you'd imagine that there would be this mosaic across the landscape. You'd have different patches of grassland structure. Some wouldn't be appropriate, but a lot would be. It would have been burnt or it would have been grazed by kangaroos and it had come into a structure where it was really good for the plains wanderer. It doesn't have as much to choose from now, so maybe in that context it seems fussy. Mm. But sheep can help, but only well-managed sheep. That's right. You don't want to bear out a paddock. You don't want it to be dirt. And you don't want to let the grass get too high or too dense because you can't wander through that. At the same time, is there actually hope? Because we've also heard that it's one of the most endangered bird species in this country right now. In the the world. In the world. So what's the future for the Plains Wanderer? Well, look, it is about changing the way we manage the land, acknowledging that we're stewards of the land and that those, you know, farmers that own land need to be looking after it. And as we've seen, there are farmers doing that. Do you think we can save it? Well, I don't know if we can save it. I'm not the expert, but I did ask David Baker Gap. We've got a number of farmers on board trying to do the right thing for the species. Are we out of the woods yet, so to speak? No, we're not out of the woods, but I would say we're not number one on death row either anymore. Um, If you went back five or six years ago, I was really worried. There's a lot of people putting a lot of effort into what's going on as far as uh, trying to, you know, preserve the plains wanderer and preserve the grasslands. Because if the grasslands don't survive, the plains wanderer doesn't survive. You know, and they, they both go hand in hand. Parks Victoria has a couple of grassland officers now for the Terek Terek National Park, and the grazing there has improved substantially. If the park needs a quick graze in some area, and that can take the pressure off a farmer's paddock with plains wanderers and divert it to a paddock in the park which needs grazing, then that's a win-win situation. And we've had paddocks where a farmer's got one next to the national park block. And in previous years, the, the park used to be too dense and the farmer's paddock was overgrazed. Last year, the farmer put his cows into the park and paddock and got it to about the right structure. For the first time, there was a male plains wanderer with chicks there and the 
farmer's paddock, which was usually grazed, was in really good condition. And I found three males, each with four chicks in that paddock. So there's a win-win, whereas previously it was lose-lose. I mean, effective conservation is a bit like a three-legged stool. If you get the science right and you get the uh, land management right and you get the community involvement right, then you've got a three-legged stool. I've worked on recovery teams for decades now and mostly they get the science and the management understanding okay, but they fall down on the community and the depth of the community involvement required. And that's where you have a wobbly old stool that may well fall over. You really have to get all three of those working in harmony. And you know, then you have a program that sings. And I think in Northern Victoria, we're on that way, which is why things are improving for Plains Wanderers. I look at our ground out here, our Plains country, it's as if um, it's part of me. You'll have to cut this out because I'll do it again. <laughs> um, it's, it's part of me. It's, um, it's funny how um, uh, um, I've always felt connected. Um, and that's probably why I never left home. You know, never didn't venture off to some other job or something like that. Um, but yeah, you're going to have to redo this. You've got me tearing up. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. I, th I think you can appreciate that Andrew is extremely passionate about the land and he's passed that passion on to me. And we hope that we can pass that on to others. The joy that we get, we may not get money you know, but it's not about the dollars. It's about the the inner feeling that you get about what you're doing is something so worthwhile that money can't buy that. And and we're really privileged to be part of that journey that, that we're presently on. And we're all crying in the studio listening to that now. It's a good reminder, isn't it, that when we talk about our connection to the land and protecting the environment, it's about animals, but it's also about us too and preserving what we have right now, which is fragile. Look, you know, Andrew told me that when they first started managing the land in this way, looking after the native species like the Plains Wanderer, other people looked at them like they had two heads. You know, mm. it wasn't the done thing, but... Um, more and more farmers are coming on board and more and more people in the broader community are starting to recognise, as you say, that the land's important, the environment's important, it's an important part of who we are as people. Also helps that the bird is pretty freaking cute. When you step out of your vehicle on a starry night, turn off all the lights and just listen for planes wanderers. And, you know, if you've worked on them for a long, you know, a large number of years, the last thing you want to see is them go down the gurgler on your watch. I mean, you you then, by dint of having been given the opportunity to study these birds in your youth, 
have a strong responsibility to do something about their survival when you're getting towards the end of your working life. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find all our other episodes at theguardian.com or any podcasting app. Please give us a rating or review anywhere you can. It really helps people find out about the show and might even inspire people to leave their husbands and find a more suitable mate. I know I'm doing that right now. Look at Me is supported by the Australian Conservation Foundation and is hosted by me, Benjamin Law. It was produced by Chris McCormack from Remember the Wild and Miles Martignoni at Guardian Australia.